What I want to do over the next who knows how long is do precisely what I believe the early church would have done for pretty much the whole length of time they might have been considered to still be early, i.e. talk about Jesus and relate everything about ourselves, everything about the world, everything about all of the scriptures to the glorious fact that not only has he always existed, not only has he entered into the time, space, dimension, and finished the whole work of the good news of the plan of God already, Not only did he come back to life to glorify the very concept of what is possible within life, but friends, and I want to make sure you actually are hearing this, he is presently, truly, actively, demonstrably, really right now alive, present, true, active, and attempting to be in the business of demonstrating his overwhelming love to each and every human being in existence. Now, how does that sound? So, what I want to do for, again, I know not how long, is take short snippets of the entirety of his earthly life, as close to chronological as we can know them to be, and then to ground these little vignettes in other sections of the scriptures. I I, I want you to see imagine, encounter, and then take to heart the scriptures in a fresh, first-hand sort of way. Or, I'll put it to you this way. If, in first century Rome, for instance, you had become a believer in Jesus and joined the city's small fellowship of believers, and if, on a particular Sunday morning, you gathered with the brothers and sisters to enjoy your fellowship with the living spirit of Jesus. And if on that particular Sunday morning, you happen to be visited by the apostle Simon Peter, who was passing through on his way even farther afield, well, what would you have wanted him to talk about? Systematic theology? apologetic strategy to defend your Christian worldview? Denominational orthodoxies about some abstruse concept? Sociopolitical commentary to inform your voting in the next popular assembly? Hmm? Jesus. You'd have wanted to hear him speak of Jesus. You'd have wanted to hear him wax rhapsodically about the glorious glory of having known him and of ever getting to know him better even still. So why should we ever do anything different? Or, I'll put it to you one last way. My friends, Jesus is the word of God, the logos theos. Theos Logos. Thus, Jesus is the reality of all theology. Jesus is the main story, the apologos of all apologoses. Thus, Jesus is himself the only apologetic for himself. Jesus is the head of the body, which is the church. Thus, all denominational, social, political differences come to die in his presence. 
for these reasons, to spend our Sundays together, these episodes together, encountering him, abiding in his presence, enjoying him, and then leaving from this time full of him is what it is. So, shall we begin? I want you to imagine approximately 3,400 years ago that you are standing in the middle of the assembly of all Israel in the windswept desert. You are, luckily for you, near to the front of the crowd, up where you can actually hear what is being said by your leader Moses as he recollects the entirety of your people's history from Egypt to now. Now, by the way, being the time of Moses preparing to die, of Joshua preparing to take over, of all your people possessing the inheritance of the promised land. For the last few hours, Moses has been speaking of the Ten Commandments, of the love of God and the call to love God, of the plan once you do cross the Jordan, of the need to remember, of Israel's waywardness, of the importance of the tabernacle, of additional elements of the law, of the year of Jubilee, of the Passover lamb. When suddenly, Moses pauses. His eyes take on a far-off, all-seeing look. Then he says this, The Lord said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. Imagine that. Or imagine, 700 years later, that you are walking along the stony streets of Jerusalem, just running an errand, and... Coming around a corner, you almost run straight into the wild-eyed prophet, Isaiah. He's staring off into the distance, out there in the open air. Many people have already discounted his words as sheer nonsense, well, for quite some time. Others consistently do follow him here and there, simply because of the strange sorts of words he utters. You are almost passing along, still on your way elsewhere, when you hear the booming sound of his voice behind you, echoing along the streets and among the people of Jerusalem. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Imagine that. Or imagine some 200 years later that you, along with your family, your clan, your tribe, all your people, have been taken as prisoners and exiles to the capital of Babylon. Your whole existence is a deathless longing for the deliverance of the Lord. Your day-by-day life is bondage, eking out a pitiful exile's wage. One day, you come upon a man in one of the outer squares of the city, and his total focus on what he's doing catches your attention. His shoulders are hunched, and he's working on something. In fact, he's doing something, you see, with a pair of sticks, one long and one a little shorter. He has assembled them into what looks like a vertical, upright beam, and the other crosses across it approximately three-quarters of the way up. It is in the form of a T or a cross, even. Well, then, turning and speaking to no one in particular, he shouts across the square these words while holding up those assembled sticks. I will make my people one. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be divided. I will cleanse them. They will be my people. I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Imagine that. Or imagine being on campaign with King David, one of his lieutenants, let's say, and you're sitting around a campfire on the night before a battle. Some of the others have fallen asleep already. The night is cool, the stars especially bright overhead. The king has done what he would often do in such settings, taken out his old shepherd's harp and begun to strum its strings. Less common, he begins upon this night to sing a song of his own writing. His voice is haunting against the darkness, the campfire, the battle to come. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. 
with him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Without explanation, the king has stopped singing. He stops strumming. His eyes look off into the darkness. By the firelight, you see their distant, far-off look. Then he begins again. My heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Imagine that. My friend, what would you say if I said to you that Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, King David, all wished they could have what you and I so often take for granted? My friend, they wanted to see the prophet who'd be born to us, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, who'd make an everlasting covenant and die to make it so and yet see no decay. They yearned to meet the word who would reign forever, the prince of peace who'd be our shepherd, the delightful inheritance who draws us unto eternal pleasures at his own right hand. Or as the writer of the book of Hebrews would say it later, Listen to this. All these whom we have mentioned maintained their faith, but died without actually receiving God's promises. Though they had seen them in the distance, had hailed them as true, and were quite convinced of their reality. They freely admitted that they lived on this earth as exiles and foreigners. Men who say that mean, of course, that their eyes are fixed upon their true homeland. If they had meant the particular country they had left behind, they had ample opportunity to return. No. The fact is that they longed for a better country altogether. Nothing less than a heavenly one. And because of this faith of theirs... God is not ashamed to be called their God, for in sober truth he has prepared for them a city in heaven. That was Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. My friend, Jesus is our present taste of heaven, the only object of our faith. He is the better country altogether of the kingdom of God. He is our true homeland. We are ever in exile when we're not with him. He is reality. He is truth. He is ever near. The glimpses we'll see of him together are enough to take us all the way home. He is both the promiser and the promise. 
As his friend John once said, he is life himself. Thanks for listening.